Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 45, October 2021. Read me a story, a conversation with Elizabeth Wiley. Hi again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. Let's dive straight into our quiz. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Um, I'd like to go on holiday next year. I would really like to go to the States. Yeah, that's my ambition to get to New York. Um, but I don't really know. Gary's asking me to go to Ireland. <laughs> he thinks it'll be a good idea if me, him and his mates and somebody else went to Ireland for a weekend or, you know, a little break. Um, but I'm not too sure about that. No prizes for narrowing it down to England, but where in England exactly did you think? It was a pretty classic Liverpool sound, wasn't it? So congratulations if that was your answer. It was Ideas England 17, contributed by our idea editor, Lise Olsen, in the year 2000, and transcribed by Dave Beals. Thanks, guys. I hope you're doing well. Search for England 17 at dialectsarchive.com to hear the whole recording. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? I started working in a radio show, and then uh, that was like a chain. And then I was starting in television, and, and then I spent four years working and living from the show business. Get the answer next time. Today, we return a second time to one of my very favourite topics, audiobook narration. My very first guests back in March 2018 on episode two were the wonderful Tavia Gilbert and Julia Whelan, who have narrated over 1,000 audiobooks between them. My guest today is Elizabeth Wiley, a prolific and multiple award-winning audiobook narrator. On audible.com, the largest distributor of audiobooks, in just 10 years, she has racked up no fewer than 143 books, 56 in the literature and fiction category alone, the longest being Belle Cora by Philip Margulies, running over 25 hours. Liz and I became friends when Rosetta Stone, the language teaching company, hired me to direct the production of their American English software, and I asked Elizabeth to help me voice the instruction. And she also kindly contributed a marvellous reading of a Lady Macbeth monologue to my Voicing Shakespeare ebook. You can purchase a copy of that on my website under Other Products on the menu bar. Liz, it's so good of you to join me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Me too, Paul. I'm so glad to be here. We're both huge fans of the art of storytelling and of audiobooks in particular. Uh, I thought we should just share with each other what, what got us involved, each of us, uh, and what our involvement with the, with the art form has been. So you first. I have been a teacher, a professor of acting and voice for 27 years, and I picked up doing audiobooks about 10 years ago. Mm. And just recently, like at the end of spring semester, I retired from teaching in order to shift my full attention into audiobooks. I feel like that is where everything that I've been researching, studying, doing, it all comes together. What got me started, I'd always been interested in uh, some kind of voiceover work, 
although that went on hold once I started teaching. And so round about 2009 or so, I thought, you know what, I think, I think I will look into that. I don't know what area of voiceover. I ended up participating in audiobook narrator contest that Scott, uh-huh. yeah, that Scott Brick yes. had offered and it was called share the share the wealth or something. All the entrants who in the, one of the things was you couldn't have done any audiobooks before. Uh-huh. So I entered, I did a piece that probably wasn't as well researched as I could have, but nevertheless, I put it in there and uh and i ended up getting a, a placing in third for that so wonderful so then i knew that that was something i wanted to pursue further so i went to a workshop that scott brick was teaching with pat fraley and immediately after that i went to the audio publishers association mm-hmm. conference and hit the ground I want I want to say hit the ground running but I hit the ground limping because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't all happen at once even though I you know had had a many many years of acting and voice work and all of this so then you know I would say a year year and a half later I started to feel like okay I am going ahead and now the work is starting to come in yeah I'm so deeply envious of you being able to devote yourself full time, even though I'm sure it's a question of stamina. You know, can you keep doing it six and mm. seven hours a day? Does your brain give out or does your voice give out first? And But even so, I would love to just devote myself the way you have to it. And mm. I can't believe that you have amassed 143 audiobooks on Audible in, in just 10 years. That's astonishing. Thank you. I feel like it's a very nice chunk of work. And I did it while I was also teaching. So I would say it was part-time, although I was kind of a workaholic. There are certainly narrators who put in a lot more hours than I do and and do a lot more books per year than I do. It's an impressive body of work. And I've been dipping dipping through as many of your, your works as I could. And I'm just getting more and more impressed with your with your talent. You're very kind, Paul. Thank you. Let's roll the clock back, I don't know, 10,000 years to when our uh-huh. species species started telling stories. Isn't it fascinating to think of the ancient bards before writing was invented and the ancient rhapsodes telling stories from memory to spellbound tribal members, stories of the gods and the tribal heroes. And I love that idea of gathering around the fire and telling the story of what happened when you were out on the hunt or running into another tribe uh, and so trying to trying to recreate for others what happened yes yes and the creation stories you know how how did oh. we get here why are we here who's watching over our lives you know those those things that provide continuity to our human society yes. and the storytellers central to all of that and don't you love to think of those solo storytellers doing what we do, embody and give voice to the story's characters? And, and uh, perhaps drama was born when two such artists started sharing the job and found they were able to actually have dialogue. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. And, and the listeners, make, the audience makes the, completes the circle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and all long before any stories were written down. Oral tradition for ever so yeah. many eons. Yeah. And we are descendants of those bards and rhapsodes of long ago, you and I. Oh, I like that thought. I like to think of that in that way. It's it's deep and long and part of our souls. Yeah. Intrinsic to our beings. Yeah. But now we tend to be using scripts. We are, as I've said in many podcasts before, we are sort of tyrannized by the written word. <laughs> and here we are reading aloud for listeners, uh, reading something that is actually literature. It's, you know, it's punctuated, it's grammatical for the most part, unless you have an author who's attempting to capture the vernacular style. Right. But for the most part, we've got literature on the page in front of us, on our screen in front of us. And, mm -hmm. and we have to turn that somehow into something that's believable or experienceable as as oral storytelling. How do you cope with the transition from the written page, the grammatical, punctuated, paragraphed, complete sentences, subject, main verb, object? You know, how do you turn that into something that's credible as as a story that's sort of being birthed in the that, moment, in your that, mind and in your in your mouth? That's the great question, isn't it? That's the question that actors are seeking to, mm -hmm. to find, how to lift something off the page and make it living. And, you know, practice, practice, practice. It takes so, you know, it, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll step back from that easy answer. Um, you know, you have to really put yourself inside the experience of either the the story itself, the inside the intention of the author, mm -hmm. if you're in any case, but especially if you're doing nonfiction, inside the experience of the characters. So that when I'm reading something on the page, I'm always I'm going through the imagined motions. I'm seeing that described room or landscape yes. i'm i'm breathing I'm, the 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 moment to moment happening and maybe even even discovering it along with the author or yes yes rather than, rather than regurgitating something pre-digested you, you perhaps experiencing it at that moment and experiencing it fresh that is i think one of the keys right there mm -hmm. you've said it yeah uh, to, to making something feel like it's happening for the first time. So we're talking about the secrets of irresistible audiobook reading. You know, what, what makes for a compelling page turner? What's the, what's the audiobook equivalent of a page turner? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of those driveway moments that yeah. I think NPR says. You're driving, you get yep, home, yep. you're in the middle of an exciting chapter, and it's like, yeah. I, I, I'm not going inside yet. I got to fit. Yeah. yeah. So why do we why do we turn off some narrators within a few seconds and and stay with others for hours? I mean, your longest book I think runs twenty five hours. Listening, yeah. To um, I will admit that I you know sometimes I will start to listen to a book, try to give it a fair shot, and having nothing to do with the author, I I may decide not to keep listening to it because of the narrator. So what is it? Great literature, it? a great story, but you know, obviously the narrator is is key to all of this. We're experiencing it through his or her mind and mouth. Right. So and of course I I realize that I'm I have a very discerning 
having been a teacher and a coach for so long, like you, uh, you know, we're, we're listening more closely, perhaps, than the average listener. But if the narrator is doing something, whatever it is, that takes me out of the story, shifts the story instead to, oh, that was that was an interesting way you said that T at the end of the word. And then I go back to the story and I think, oh, I just lost the last sentence or two no, because I was it. thinking about this other thing. Yes, yes. They're in their own way, perhaps. Or briefly, they just got in, in the way of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I hear an, a narrator who is concerned with his or her own virtuosity, her the pleasantness of her or his voice or, mm. or the quality of his or her diction so that the sort of the diction cop is sitting on the narrator's shoulder and you can you just can hear that that's where their focus is rather than with with the vernacular unfolding of the story right. so their yeah. own virtuosity if they're in in the way with that perhaps sometimes even the great jim dale who does the harry mm. potter stories so well if ever there were stories that demanded virtuosity, it's it's the Harry Potter stories. Oh yes. But sometimes I get a little tired of Jim Dale. He, I'm, he's so successfully it won't hurt him if I say so. <laughs> the performer is front and center. I hear the performer sometimes rather than the character. You know, and I think that we all play with where is that line? Mm-hmm. I want to be clear. I want to honor the author's words. I don't want my diction to present itself front and center because that should be, it should be present, but completely not in the front of my awareness or or your awareness. Yes. That's tough sometimes. Again, that's practice for clarity. Unobtrusive clarity. Right? Unobtrusive clarity. Any technique that announces itself or shows is a, a technique misapplied, right? Absolutely. And sometimes you can kind of work with the interpretation to accommodate clarity, like I'm going to take a little pause at the end of a word if I need to get that ending on there, but I don't want it to stick out. I mean, I, yeah. I hear some narrators give me every every consonant, you know, and, uh, and they'll say something like, don't talk. Don't talk. Instead of don't right. talk. Don't talk. That's when I, call it, when I say that the, the diction cop is on point duty. So as I was uh, thinking about what we might talk about, I, I found myself dividing the techniques and the art into exoteric and esoteric. Uh, mm-hmm. The exoteric things are easy, you know, variety of speed, pleasant voice, clarity mm-hmm. of diction, the vocal characterizations that make who it is that's speaking fairly clear to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. All of those things are exoteric to me. But then someone could do all of that stuff right mm-hmm. and still be a, a dead, boring narrator because, <laughs> because, because it's the esoteric stuff. The, and, and I wanted to focus on that a little bit. Sure. To me, I wonder if, what it is for you. It's It's my fundamental relationship with the listener that's important. If I'm, if I'm distant emotionally from the listener, uh, if I'm not speaking as if I'm speaking to Liz Wiley right now, mm-hmm. if I don't imagine that I'm taking up the time of that listener and I need to earn that listener's attention by thinking that the, the story is so interesting or important that it's, it excites me, um, you know, that's... 
I've got, I've got to uh, earn your attention, it seems. And that's through making the story important and honoring your ability to process the story just as quickly as I am. What, what do you think? Mm-hmm. What are those esoteric areas of the art that many a narrative founders on and, and, and the really great ones seem to grasp? The, the ineffable, ineffable, Paul, <laughs> I can't even say the word. <laughs> um, it is about imagining talking to the listener, a listener, rather than a big audience. Yes. There's, there's an intimacy with audiobooks because so much of the time, not all the time, but so much of the time we're listening through headphones or, or AirPods or earbuds, mm-hmm. right? You want to feel like the narrator is speaking to you personally right so i mean how intimate is this i mean it, i have a microphone 4 inches from my mouth and yeah. that's where your ear is so empty i'm it's almost as if i'm 4 inches from liz's ear exactly yeah yeah so there's that there's also when i narrate i am imagining that the person is not also following along on the page. Right. Although there is, you know, the whisper sync capability where you can read from your device mm-hmm. and then have to get in the car and go somewhere and it will pick up where you left off reading with your eyes. Yes. And then you start listening from where that left off, which is a lovely feature. So you can you can mix both. And I imagine, you know, sometimes people will listen and read along, or particularly for young readers who are developing their reading skills, that's a great feature. But for me, and I'm an avid listener as well, I think I, you know, we have to be to to know what works yes. and what doesn't work, is helping to make the story and the text clear. And I say that because lately I've been doing a lot of nonfiction, particularly history books, different areas of history. And those history books can get very, sometimes very academic with very long, convoluted Dickensian, if you will, sentences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to help the listener put together where is the through line of that thought. Of course, I'm speaking technically. This is perhaps exoteric again, but there's a lot of overlap. If I have an antithesis where there's a, something I'm com- contrasting and comparing in a mm-hmm. sentence, I want to help the listener hear that so that they don't have to think, what, wait, what? I, I, I need to rewind and listen to that again. I think, and I skate a little bit in the edge of that clarity area. But in terms of what is that magical ingredient? Yeah. It's just being in the moment. Yeah. Scooping the story off a page, rebirthing it through one's brain, speaking it as if it's freshly birthed from our brain. Right. Uh, with total involvement and total, and the backstory and the wisdom and, the, and the, mm. all of the, if the relevance of the story, the wider relevance of the story to our lives isn't in the back of the narrator's mind if if he or she doesn't have that wisdom to know the significance as if the story were a parable then i i think we we know we're aware of when there's that 
deep involvement, that deep wisdom that's that informs right. the story. So mm-hmm. we just got to be. I think we got to be wise. Uh, it's hard to teach wisdom, I suppose, but <laughs> the, the more we can engage with those stories at at the deepest level. I mean, I'm going to read. We're going to read stories to each other in a moment, and I'm going to read uh, the tail end of a Christmas Carol. Lovely. Mm. And if, if ever there was a story that was important, not just to Ebenezer Scrooge, it's not just his story. Mm-hmm. It's the story of the possibility of redemption from yes. cynicism and cruelty and, and meanness and the joy that comes when you can let go of cynicism and, and stinginess and Scroogeness. At its deepest level, it has that message. It has a kind of a biblical scriptural overlay. And if the author, if, if the reader doesn't acknowledge that, isn't aware of those deeper resonances, then perhaps the listener is less likely to get them. Well said. Yes. Yes. There's a, an enthusiasm for the story, the topic, a passion. The storyteller has to imbue. And I think that energy of involvement, intensity, dedication to what you're saying is also part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Should we read to each other? Let's do. Want to flip a coin? Who goes first? <laughs> well, you've just been talking about Scrooge. So maybe maybe we should start with that. And how nice this is that I have one particular listener to tell this story to. Mm. You. Um, we have a relationship. And how nice. And I think no matter whether we're reading to a, a distant anonymous listener who we have no idea who they are, we've got, surely got to imagine that they're there and that uh, that we have that relationship with them. Anyway, these are the closing few, closing few minutes of, of A Christmas Carol. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock, but he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? said Scrooge to the girl. Yes, sir. Where is he, my love? said Scrooge. He's in the dining room, sir, along with mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Well, thank you. He, he knows me, said Scrooge, with his hand already on the dining room lock. I'll go in here, my dear. He turned it gently and sidled his face in round the door. They were looking at the table, which was spread out in great array, for these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points. I'd like to see that everything is right. Fred, said Scrooge. Dear heart alive, how his niece by marriage started. Scrooge had forgotten for the moment about her sitting in the corner with the footstool, or he wouldn't have done it on any account. Why, bless my soul, cried Fred. Who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home 
in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came. So did the plump sister when she came. So did everyone when they came. Wonderful party. Wonderful games. Wonderful unanimity. Wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he had his heart set upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come in. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming in here this time of day? I'm very, very sorry, sir, said Bob. I am behind my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, pleaded Bob. It shall not be repeated. I, I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, he continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back, and therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken, as he clapped him on his back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon, Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another I, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the good old city knew. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Oh, that was just marvelous. It's so easy to, to get taken away with that story, oh, though, isn't it? It, it That's is a great story. The, it, well, it's a great story, first, but, but you know, you the way you were capturing the mood, but also the what is happening with Scrooge right now. It's almost as if I Just, become Scrooge. I can't right, help but come, right. become Scrooge myself. 
that feeling that he has right before he knocks on Fred's door. But he made a dash, uh, uh, whatever the line is, but it's like, okay, I'm going to knock on the door. Here I go. Yeah. Um, we we heard that in the intake of your breath and then the, the tone of your voice. We heard that I'm not sure how I will be received as he tiptoed into the, yeah. the room rather than going straight upstairs. All, all the subtext, all of the all backstory. All the subtext. He all. was at home in five minutes. I heard the relief, the comfort, the joy, but it was, you know, it was layered in there without slamming me on the head. Mm-hmm. It was it was just woven into the tapestry brilliantly, Paul. And, oh, and I love the starting the next day, going into the office to have some fun with Bob Cratchit. I heard the mischief and play even in the in the narrator's you know, mm-hmm. doesn't even have to be words that are coming out of Scrooge's mouth, but but you know that the the narrator knows. I mean, the the you know the oh, the uh, omniscient storyteller knows that we're going to have some fun in this next scene. Yes, and and I'm conscious of um, changes of location and time. I mean, on the page we can see the paragraph break, right? And there's a jump. In time or space, so yeah, but, but, there's several ways enough, to do not, that, isn't there? N- not enough narrators, I think, give us that paragraphing. Perhaps I, I don't know. Well, I think I would agree, and also I think sometimes whoever is doing some editing and mastering on that, depending on who it is or what production company or whatever, mm-hmm. I think. Um, sometimes in editing down a script, they might be too prescriptive about, mm-hmm. okay, uh, 0.5 seconds between this and that, no, 1.5 seconds between this and that, and not pay attention to, oh, that was not just a paragraph, but a section break. Yes. You know, so, so okay, so let's set that aside, that, that it, let's forgive when that happens, or yes. or hopefully get it get more awareness towards that but for the for the narrator it you know it can be the length of time yes but it also has to there has to be some kind of a a fresh breath in a, a, yes it's a, a shift. lift yeah, yeah we're shifting we're shifting focus there's a hinge in the story right it might be a a pitch lift or a different energy coming into it. So some, we some sort of change. some sort of gear, some sort of gear change. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, and that and that really helps the listener follow the story to help take us to different locations, different times. Do you think uh, I gave yeah. you enough or too much or too little character voice for Cratchit and the other people, or did I give you just enough? And how do you decide? And how would you how would you decide in this story how much? to go into into uh, full-blown yeah. full Scrooge and full-blown Bob? I am of the ilk that likes my characters. I want you to give them to me, embody them. So I think you did just enough. I think you were right there. I don't want to overpower the listener with the virtuosity of, oh, Meyer can do voices and accents. and it's, it's, I've always had to... To rein myself in a little bit. I totally understand because I think I have to do that myself too. 
But, you know, especially with this story that we know so well, that most people know, we, we want to be, we want to dive into it. We want to be wrapped in all of that, those wonderful characters in that language. Although there are listeners, and I'm going to get away from Christmas Carol for a moment and say there are listeners who don't want as much, who have, you know, written comments or reviews and said, you know what, I... I want to add my own sense of character. You just give me what it says on the page. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole range of preferences and we can't please all the people all the time. Right. right, right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm fond of saying when I'm coaching beginners at this art, I often say, obviously each book is different, but mm. I think there's a good rule of thumb that you give the listener enough that he or she can conjure the characters up for him or herself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than doing all the work for them. So, you know, because, you know, if you deprive the listener of, of their creativity and what they bring to the story, then, you, you know, you're doing all the work for them and it's a little too much. I know that there have been several, a couple instances I can think of in my number of audiobooks I've done where I've probably stepped over the line a little bit particularly earlier in my narrating career. But then, you know, that you, you can get vastly different reactions and comments from people on the same work. You know, there might be one listener review who says, uh, and by the way, I try not to read audible reviews or at least put too much stock in them, but to look and say, is there a pattern and can I learn anything from this? But on well, one you, you don't have to worry. You've I, got a, you got it close to a perfect five on your ratings from audible listeners. I wish. But I, anyway, you know what? There might be one person that says, oh, that was just over the top too much. I couldn't listen. And on the same book, someone could say, oh, my God, that was Oscar worthy. Yada, yada. <laughs> so it's like, well, uh, uh, hello. I mean, there's but those are extremes. Right. Yes, yes. I think you just do service to the story, service to the author. I narrate the way that I like to listen to audiobooks. And that's, that's I think, as much as I can do. Yes. I'm very conscious when I read that I'm not enslaved by the punctuation. Mm. I'll run through the periods, you know. So I've got, for instance, um, let him in, exclamation point. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off, period. He was yeah. at home in five minutes, period. Nothing could be heartier, period. It, but that might come out of your mouth and let him in. It's a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's as David Crystal pointed out in the last podcast, that the rhythms and phrasings of, of speech is vastly different to the grammatical phrasings that sit there on the page uh, enslaved in punctuation. Absolutely. So that was a great example you just gave. Also, I guess part of punctuation and part of the writing is, you know, the pleated bob, said Scrooge, which do we, some people have asked, well, do you need to put those in if you're yes. saying the voices anyway? Well, yes, because we have to be as word perfect as possible yes. to the to the author. Have you ever um, had an author who's given you permission to, to remove the said Jim replied bob? No, it's always there. We can minimize them if. Just a know, little, little so, parenthetical. He said, she said, I did stop listening to, well, I listened to the whole book, but 
of one narrator, but I decided not to listen to any more of her books because she spent too much time on, he said, she said. It's like, wow, that was a lot of time on those, and I don't need that. And of course, some authors simply said, rather than said Jim, said Alice, they will simply put the uh, direct speech and paragraph it so that we know when the speaker changes. Right. And, uh, and that gives us permission or actually requires us to more fully uh, identify the speaker. Right. It requires the advanced reading and preparation that good narrators do. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. There was something else I was going to say about punctuation. I guess it had to do with when, uh, and there's actually a moment in the excerpt I'll read in a little bit here, mm -hmm. where it says she yelled. You know, she was yelling. Or if there's something that's written in all caps and multiple exclamation points. Am I going to yell into the microphone? No. <laughs> um, but I can give a sense of You have that. to give a, yes, because if you whisper the line and then follow it by, uh, you know, yell Jill, uh, you know, that's going to be a disconnect for us, isn't it? Right, right. You know, and then there are many authors, there are some authors who continue to use <laughs> I'll 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 bring out one example, but but it's it's ubiquitous. Where he gasped, she gasped. Oh boy, do we hate that word, <laughs> gasp. For you listeners out there right now, just to say gasped a bunch of times in a row, gasped. gasped. Oh, you're talking about the diction of the the, the diction cluster. of the word, and mm. then but then you have to. He goes. Oh, so does the gasp happen in the line or or after or before the line? Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Oh, sure. All of that. Yeah. All of that stuff's on an audiobook narrator's mind. And uh, if, if it's done right, then it'll never be an issue for the listener, we hope. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Your turn. Okay. So, oh, my goodness. Okay. Set this one up. This is not nearly so well known as Christmas Carol. So give us a little setup about it. All uh, right. This book, as a matter of fact, was just released uh, this past summer of 21 by Andromeda Romano Lax. It's the second title I've done for her. This one is called Annie and the Wolves. And in a blurb, it involves a historian who is researching a book. She's writing a book about Annie Oakley. And in the process of her research, she discovers some unexpected things about Annie Oakley that then that that she's finding parallels in her own life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of those books that's hard to categorize in a genre. It's uh, genre defying. Some you uh -huh. could say it's a there's a little time travel, there's a little mystery, a little thriller, there's a little uh, historical fiction, of course. So here we go. All right. Dr. Susan Joy Hofsipian had been the first therapist to whom Ruth had confessed the disturbing image she had seen of Scott back when they still lived together. Dr. Hofsipian suggested it was connected to either an urge or a persistent thought that presented itself as an urge. At Dr. Susan's recommendation, Ruth attended a harm OCD group therapy session. Listening to other people talk about wanting to stab their mothers or drop their babies on their heads did not help Ruth understand her vision of Scott suffering and bleeding. 
The intrusive image said nothing about her relationship with Scott or her desires, real or imagined. In fact, it said the opposite. Ruth did not want to see Scott hurt. There was one possibility that seemed obvious, if only to Ruth, that she wasn't fantasizing or imagining at all, but glimpsing a future event. Have you mentioned this to Scott? Dr. Susan asked during the private session, which took place in early March, three months after the crash. No. Dr. Susan made an approving sound, lips pressed shut. You think I shouldn't tell him then? What do you think? I think it would scare him. Why? Because it would either mean that he's going to be seriously hurt in some way we can't predict, or that I'm batshit crazy. Dr. Susan hummed again with closed lips and touched her platinum hair, a tell the therapist indulged when she disagreed with the use of a word or phrase. Ruth said, a lot of people believe in future predictions of some sort, premonitions, dreams that serve as warnings. A lot of people, one person in 10, something like that. You seem to be doing a lot of online research. We've talked about limiting your screen time. You're still having headaches, yes. Fewer of them. Your brain needs rest. It also needs answers. You've identified a difference between yourself and the others in the group. They understand they are imagining things that haven't happened, that don't need to happen, as much as they struggle with intrusive thoughts about these imaginary situations. Whereas you, Ruth are seeing things you can't easily distinguish from reality. Not the point. If it did turn out to be reality at some point, then she wasn't having a hard time distinguishing. And that, the therapist said, brings us back to something we've discussed before, which is schizotopy. You're saying I'm schizophrenic? These issues may exist on a continuum. Some forms of schizotopy are benign, like religious experiences or even simple creativity. Dr. Susan smiled. I'd like you to continue attending the harm OCD group. I'm not going to harm Scott. Ruth hadn't meant to yell. I'm not even anxious about it. Dr. Susan leaned back in her chair. It concerns me, actually, that you're not anxious about it. We also need to consider psychotic disorder following traumatic brain injury. Psychotic? They had just been talking about continuums and creativity. I definitely don't think I'm psychotic. People get stuck on the label, which is why it's more helpful to talk about managing your symptoms. Besides that image, is there anything else that flashes into your head with regularity, particular words, voices? It was a ridiculous question. Of course, words were always flashing through Ruth's mind. She read and wrote for a living. Dr. Susan pressed again. Specific words? Phrases? Ruth was getting increasingly uncomfortable with Dr. Susan's line of questioning. I think I need a second opinion. Dr. Susan smiled again, but there was no light in her eyes. That's never a bad idea. I'd be happy to give you a referral. 
One day, seven months after the accident, Scott had barely walked in the door, beat from a long day at school. Ruth started to explain how William Randolph Hearst, the famous newspaper magnate, had allowed an outrageous false story to run in his papers, claiming that Annie Oakley had stolen some clothes in order to fund a drug habit. The story went viral. First, Hearst tarnished her brand, Ruth said, following Scott as he dropped his backpack and laptop bags in the hallway. Then, when she went after him in court, he sent a private detective to her hometown to dig up dirt on her, anything he could use to undermine her legal case. Can I just use the bathroom first? Of course, she said, but she hung outside the bathroom door. When he came out and headed toward the kitchen, she tagged behind. So, Hurst goes digging, which doesn't actually turn up anything because she was really a prim and proper lady, but it was classic intimidation. Scott pulled a beer out of the fridge. She gestured for him to hand her a bottle, but he didn't. Isn't that risky with the clozapine? Should I order takeout? Are you listening? I'm trying. I've got 47 tests to grade. I missed lunch because we had an incident with a senior who was acting up and making threats. Can I finish? Sure, he said. So here's the amazing thing. Annie Oakley is famous in the annals of American libel law because she won so much money. Hearst even pressed for new legislation to stop her. That's great, Scott said waiting phone in one hand and grease-spotted restaurant menu in the other. But here's the key. As much as she won, she didn't make a profit. Scott was studying Ruth's face. Are you still taking the clozapine? You're usually groggy when I get home, Scott said. Right now, you're wired. Being groggy sucks. I'm sure it does. Can I please finish what I'm trying to tell you so that at least I have it straight in my head when I try to write it up tonight? Tonight? You're not supposed to be working at all. I still have a chance to finish this book, if I can get my head straight. Scott set down his phone. Ruth, are you taking the clozapine? She looked away. I don't need it. The clozapine isn't for the panic attacks. What's it for, then? They're not even technically panic attacks. This is new information. Do you want to explain? Not when you sound like that. How am I supposed to know what's going on in your head? Trust me, you don't. Well, that sounds like a great recipe for a relationship. Scott glanced at his phone on the table, but he didn't pick it up. It was the wrong time to order takeout. The wrong time for just about anything. Wow. Okay, there we are. Wow. That is masterful. Oh, so many things to point out that, that are fabulous about what you did. Where to start? The story came at me effortlessly. I didn't have to work. Good. You, you know, I mean, it's not that I wasn't involved uh, to the point of creating the, the pictures for myself because you, you left me room to do that. I, di I didn't have to do that disturbing sense of really buckling down to follow it. It was effortless to follow. So there... And how did you do that? I was slightly conscious mm -hmm. that, that you do what I call the, the hierarchy of importance. You didn't make everything equally important so that when you hit something that was important, a word or a phrase that's more important than everything else, it all falls into 
into place. Hierarchy of importance, that absolutely is part of it, because some things just are there to move the story along, and other things are discoveries, as you mentioned earlier. Yes, yes. Yeah. Or, you know, re realizations, yes. which is like yeah. a discovery, right? Yeah, yeah. The three, I was conscious of the three characters, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Susan, Ruth, and Scott, uh, three very different characters. I could see them so clearly. You know, one's a guy and two of them are women. You didn't work overly hard at convincing me that this is a man's voice, but yet there was a man in front of me quite clearly. I loved, I don't know if you do this intentionally or consciously or how you achieve the result, but somehow cinematically in the interview between Ruth and Dr. Susan, it's as if uh, Ruth had most of the close-ups and we saw Dr. Susan sometimes in close-up, but more frequently behind her desk at a mid-shot distance. And I don't know if you backed off from the mic to achieve that effect of Dr. Susan's slightly greater distance or whether it's just inherent in the, I don't know, how did you achieve that? Or were you even conscious of achieving that? I didn't shift my proximity to the microphone, but I would guess, and I love how you describe that in terms of type of camera shot. <laughs> you know, it might have to do with the way that I chose to use timbre and pitch and resonance. Mm -hmm. Ruth was slightly higher in pitch and buzzed up. So that really comes forward into the front mask of the face, which is going to ping forward. And, yes. you know, and Dr. Susan was a, a little farther back in the mouth. So in terms yes. of, you know, proximity to the mic, maybe thinking of that gives a a proximity or what pierces through yes. or or sort of sits back and, and of course you did yeah. characterize you did care you know we were, our greatest sympathy is with ruth of course um so we're less sympathetic to dr susan's point of view but you left it for us to to make that decision you led us a little bit but only as much as is necessary okay so i didn't step over the line no you you skated that line of which we spoke of a little while ago just impeccably. Thank you, Paul. It's good to have this feedback from you, from a professional, because we do walk that line. And we're wondering, how you know, have I stepped over? Could I do mm -hmm. more? Should I do less? And as we were talking just a moment ago, it, so much of it is listener preference. But ideally, you want to just pull that story off the page. Yeah. There's another minor miracle that you achieve that so many people don't achieve so well, and that's the sense that dialogue overlaps. You know, obviously we're one voice. We cannot make Ruth and Dr. Susan overlap, but we can almost give the impression by picking up the cues quickly that it mm -hmm. is that kind of conversation almost overlapping. I, I've not heard other people speak about the trick of breathing not at the speech boundaries, but internally in the speeches so that you can shift voice without a breath and give a greater uh -huh. appearance of um, overlapping a real conversation? Yeah, it has to do with well, so many things, but you know, the, not only the timing, but when someone is trying to interject in a conversation, they come in with a particular energy, don't they? Because they yes. have to override what's right. already going on. Yes. So um, there has to be a, 
a, a sharpness or a, a raise in pitch or volume or an attack on that first syllable. However you achieved it, you, it was happening for me. It was as if I was hearing two people. I could see the two people, one slightly at a distance, one slightly more foregrounded, and, and they were having overlapping conversations. It's amazing. Terrific. Good, good. Um, I'm just glancing at the script now and seeing that you have a phrase... Dr. Susan hummed again with closed lips and touched her platinum hair, a tell, the therapist indulged when she, and by lifting tell, that unfamiliar word was totally clear. It was important to you. You knew it was special. So I paid attention to it and understood perfectly what that unfamiliar word actually meant in that context. I'm not going to say, and I can even find it here in the script, but I'm not going to say a quote tell unquote, because that's, yeah. yeah. The authors put it in inverted commas, but- Right. You vocalize you vocalized the inverted commas. And that's that's a tough thing to do sometimes. Fabulous. You're not schizotypy. Schizotypy. You know what? And I had I looked it up. Schizotypy. Yes. Schizotypy. And, yep. and, and in your script I see you having spelled it out for yourself phonetically. <laughs> I mean, there's a perfect example. That's a word that the listeners probably never heard. Right. But, but rather than being resentful that you've introduced a an unfamiliar word too rapidly, you've given it its due. It's sitting sitting out to the side a little bit. So I'm oh I I I think I understand that word. Oh, aren't I clever? So you 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 dealt with the unfamiliar vocabulary just in a masterful fashion. You did the same thing with the harm OCD group. You, you that was clear on the page it's clear vocally it could get indistinct couldn't it because it's not a it's not a group of words and letters we we hear every day harm mm. ocd well, uh, yeah um mm, yeah and you want to give us just enough time to process that without rushing us ahead you have that ability liz to keep us with you and it's timing of course it, there's so many other things as well but timing particularly Masterful stuff. Object lesson in how to do this stuff. And I'm sure the listeners are going to be tuning into your audiobooks in droves. Oh, I let, yes, I hope so. Uh, let's keep expanding that listener base because audiobooks are the bomb. You know, I have to, um, when you get in a zone of storytelling or or listening to a story or anything that you do and you're involved in and you get in that flow state that Chick sent me high author who has written and talked about flow that's when we feel transported yeah when time morphs we're not sure how much time has gone by yes that's living with joy for me yes it's like a great sports exponent they're in the zen of it and uh or another metaphor i'm fond of using is is that the story has achieved takeoff velocity it's not stuck on trundling down the runway but it's up in the air and you're keeping it in the air and oh that's a good metaphor i like that one too. take off yeah. take off velocity take off velocity <laughs> <laughs> okay what a wonderful uh, hour we've had together liz thank you so very much we're going to have to do this again. Uh, well, yes. And I tell you what, Paul, I want to hear all the rest of, of your version of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> I will, so, I will yep. make that happen for you. All right. Very good. Have a great day. And uh, 
Let's talk again soon. Let's do. This was wonderful. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Elizabeth Wiley. To learn more about her, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. And search for Elizabeth Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, on audible.com to find all her great audiobooks. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. Elizabeth read from Annie and the Wolves by Andromeda Romano Lacks. Copyright 2021 Highbridge, a division of recorded books. The extract was used here under the copyright doctrine of fair use. Search for Annie and the Wolves on audible.com to enjoy the whole book. And you can hear another little extract from my reading of A Christmas Carol. Go to paulmeyer.com slash a Christmas Carol. That's a hyphen Christmas hyphen Carol. My reading of the whole novel is included when theatres lease my show-specific dialect coaching recordings for their production of A Christmas Carol. If you aren't familiar with this programme of mine, go to Dialect Recordings for Plays and Musicals on my website. You'll find it under Other Products on the menu bar. If your own theatre is one of the hundreds who produce an annual version of A Christmas Carol, you'll be interested in this, I think. I have show-specific dialect recordings for this and over 100 well-known plays and musicals. I devote a recording to each character, coaching the actor in every sung or spoken line. I think I might be the only coach in the business who offers this service. And as you heard, I frequently work with aspiring audiobook narrators too. If you or someone you know has ambitions in this field, I'm here to help. Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com. My guest next month is Erica Okrant, author of the hugely entertaining and informative book, Highly Irregular. We'll be talking about how and why English, above many other languages, is so darn quirky, inconsistent. Next time, on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>